0: Springtime is the best time of the year. The mornings greet you with a nice chill, and the afternoons warm your bones. The forest sparks back to life in full bloom. The insects and the birds sing their familiar songs, letting the creatures of the forest know to wake. But with spring warmth also comes dark things, unwanted things, stuff you may only find in fairy tales, trolls, goblins, kelpie, goatmen, and fairies. So, children, when you go out hiking in these woods, don't get too distracted from the spring beauty, or we may never see you again, Danny. Can you quit scaring the children and let them go hiking? I am not scaring the children, I'm just simply letting them know the dangers that lurk in these woods.
1: Finish your story and let them go.
0: Fine. Just one more story.
1: Sarah stands at the last spot she is certain her son Owen was the night he vanished. She can tell by the stones, a foot-high pile of them in the center of the train tracks just ahead of the trestle stretching across the valley. Even a year later, she worries the quarter-sized mica schist he gave her with an intensity suggesting that if she caresses it enough, he'll return to her. He'll simply amble up the path in his granddaddy's ratty, navy-issued jacket, accompanied by the crunch of October leaves, his cinnamon-colored eyes adoring and grateful, the opposite of what they were that night. Mom, you're going to have to let me go sometime. You have no choice. She is sure what has brought her to the edge of the trestle this night has been the sound of his voice, beckoning her from the empty home where she can only sleep on his vacant bed, down the age-worn porch steps, across their leaf-blanketed lawn and three miles through a night burdened by the smell of mushrooms, wet tree bark, and dampened campfire ash. Owen there is no answer. There was only the echo and the skin-chilling screech of a fledgling barred owl begging to be fed. She remembers the first time she fed her son. Seb was there, brandishing his police machismo, even though the first time he'd held Owen, he'd been terrified of squeezing the baby too hard and breaking it. She knew he hadn't really wanted the settled-down life. He'd wanted to move north, Cop it up in a place with some action, like New York, even. So she took his fear as nothing more at first than an excuse. He was leaning over her, so close his tobacco and cotton smell masked the stale hospital air. His eyes are like a weird brown, he said. Where do you suppose he got that color from? They're like his granddaddy's. Sarah said. No, I mean... I thought all babies were born with blue eyes. She laughed, even though it hurt because Owen, on the way out, had somehow sliced her, so that nearly any movement was like sitting on hot coals. Sarah had asked Polly, the nurse who had been bringing her drugs in small paper cups, how exactly Owen had done it. But she hadn't been forthcoming. You should ask one of the nurses that was there or Dr. Campbell, Polly had said unfolding and refolding towels stacked on the orange changing table in the corner. I really don't know anything about it. Special babies, Sarah said to Seb, are born with anything but blue eyes. She heard him gulp and convinced herself it was the swallow to vanquish something in his throat. Polly entered and, rolling down the sleeves of her white turtleneck, announced loudly that Seb was being summoned to the hall by his partner, Jean. And time is up anyway. She pulled the child from Sarah's arms and hurried from the room. Seb returned. I'm sorry, sweetie, but I have to go. Sarah winced as she shifted in the bed. Why? Another body's been found at the base of the trestle. Third one this year. He'd always insisted it was just foolish people impressing their potential dates, with an I'm fast enough to lickety-spit across before the freight train comes roaring down the line, or that people ended their lives there because early settlers had deemed the valley sacred, a place where even the blackest of sinners' souls would pass to heaven. But Sarah knew there was something else her husband would never consider, something she was certain she didn't believe, something... She was sure that some of those poor broken souls did, because that was why they were there. They were searching. Her whole life there had been rumors of the goat man, and he was spoken of in whispers his eyes a peculiar shade of carrot, his nose hooked like an eagle's, his face patched in iceberg colored, whip like hairs. Some embellished him with cloven feet and horns and intoned he was the son of the devil. He possessed a hypnotic power to overwhelm trespassers with the urge to leap by, convincing them they needed to take just one step more in order to achieve their greatest desires, which he displayed before them. It had been her daddy, though, who had brought him to life for her, not in the way he'd rendered stories of him, but in the way he'd reacted to the creature's fabled existence. He'd pulled his pipe from his mouth, "'fixed upon her with his fierce eyes "'and warned her not to ever go into the woods, "'not to ever, ever play near the trestle. "'And as soon as she could grow up, "'she should fill a suitcase with all that was precious "'and find herself elsewhere, never to return. "'Now you listen here. "'I'll send you anywhere in the country, "'anywhere in the world you want to go to study your rocks,' "'he'd said one hot Memorial Day afternoon on the town green just before he'd been about to march in the annual parade. But I can't stay with you forever. And living here for the rest of your life, he'd been interrupted by that sound she'd come to know as a barred owl. He had tensed, and his grip on her shoulder had tightened. She hadn't been educated at that innocent age of eight to know that sound, much less that there was something wrong if she heard it when the sun was high. He'd eyed her. It's not good for you. There's no future, not really for anyone. Don't be like me. Staying here, eventually, it'll only make you sad. Then one of his buddies had come over to summon him, and the man, Gilbert, she'd recalled his name because he'd had a gold ring with a G set against a triangle-shaped emerald field on his pinky that was so large she'd wondered how he could hold up his slender hand had winked at her. You got a chair all set up in the gazebo for you, little miss. Little miss. She'd hated that. Her daddy had nodded. You go ahead. She hadn't wanted to let go of his hand that day, but she had. That evening, she'd waited for him to come home from the parade so they could sit on the cool porch and enjoy burgers and her mother's mint julep-soaked watermelon. But it hadn't happened. Daddy had never returned, and they'd never found his body. Sarah, never giving up hope that he would, one day, just show up, had never taken his advice. It wasn't until her mother had taken her last breath on her parents' sagging 40-year-old mattress and the house went into foreclosure that Sarah had been forced to go. She'd packed whatever she could fit in her car and took off, only to be stopped five miles up the newly paved road by Sebastian, the man who would become her husband. The second Seb's russet eyes had borne into hers, she'd known she was no more leaving than she was ever going to get to college to, quote, study rocks, All this she remembered while she felt Seb's warm hand, twice the size of hers easily on her forehead. I'll be back later, he said. Be safe. She watched him shrug into his toffee-colored leather jacket and vanish around the corner. His partner, Jean said it was an accident. That they were up on the trestle. That Jean last saw Seb balanced on one of the rails, staring straight into the woods, and the next thing he knew, he saw Seb just fall over over and down. Of course, they spared Sarah all the details. But time and again, Sarah envisioned his body splayed, snow-angel fashion on a bed of checkerberries and low-spreading hemlocks, because he loved their mint and evergreen smell. He often brought them for her to plant in the garden, near which he placed his favorite webbed lawn chair. On days when she couldn't stand another moment in her skin without him next to her, She sat in that chair, even long after the rains had rusted the aluminum and the mildew had weakened the webbing. As soon as Owen was old enough to walk, Sarah began to find queer, minuscule piles around the house. A mass of cereal puffs in the corner of his high chair, which at first seemed like nothing more than babies play with their food. She then discovered his toys were in tidy hordes in the various corners of his room. His blocks, his stuffed animals, his talking phones, and jacks-in-the-boxes. She unearthed a peck of his shoes in the back of his closet and a drift of bird feathers he'd plucked from the cat's toys behind the settee in the living room. The most mysterious was the huddle of cedar balls which she knew he could have only gotten from one place. Her daddy's trunk. The trunk where she kept his navy jacket, his Sunday watch, Bowie knife in its tooled leather sheaf, and some notes he'd written to her when she was a little girl. How had Owen gotten into that trunk? It was locked, and the key was in her dresser drawer at a height he couldn't reach. It was where she kept the unsafes pills, razor blades, rubbing alcohol. Something wasn't right, and like every first time mother, especially one who had lost her husband 26 hours and 46 minutes after her child's birth, she panicked and called Dr. Campbell. You don't think it's... it's odd? she asked him. She was washing dishes, keeping half an eye on Owen, who giggled as he played with his music box. She despised the cow-shaped thing, even when its Farmer in the Dell melody had been in tune. Owen had, at some point, managed to wedge a minuscule slice of sedimentary rock into the tiny hole above the internal mechanism, resulting in a warped melody accompanied by the sound of rubbing sandpaper. Babies do all sorts of things. They're exploring their worlds, Dr. Campbell said in a honeyed tone. You are probably lucky he's not putting the non-edibles in his mouth. Most babies put everything in their mouths. Sarah wasn't certain of that, either. She grist her hands on a dish towel and put the phone back in its cradle, then peered into Owen's eyes, so much like her daddy's. He dodged her gaze, and Sarah felt her heart bow with grief. Seb, she whispered, you need to be here. She stared at the phone as the shadows grew long, half expecting a call from beyond. When Owen reached school age, the piles of odds and ends became piles of stones. Stones sharp from having been blasted from the granite when they built the highways. Stones cracked from their tumbles down long mountainsides in the spring rains. Stones smooth from ages on the bottoms of stream beds. Sarah would stand and watch him, her arms folded across her chest wiping her hands on her rooster-patterned kitchen towel that was caked with flour from the apple pie that was in the oven and would burn. She would marvel at how the uncanny way he assembled the stones reminded her of her daddy, standing in front of the porch, hemming in the Star of Bethlehem and Cape Daisy with stones arranged in what seemed to be calculated patterns. She remembered how angry he'd get if she played with the stones, if she moved them if she even knocked one by accident. Don't you ever touch these, he'd say. And when she'd ask why, he'd regard woods and give the because I said so, that's why, now go inside and wash up, excuse. Owen was more serious. If she shifted a mound, he'd set on the front porch so the postman wouldn't trip if she cleared accumulations from the kitchen so the Avon lady wouldn't start gossip, if she so much as nudged a stone in her haste to get to the bathroom. Nine-year-old Owen stomped his feet like a bull ready to charge, and thirteen-year-old Owen pouted, brooded, and rebuilt while insisting that she didn't understand him. Fifteen-year-old Owen, though, he did something unexpected. He gave her a small, round piece of garnet mica schist. She knew what it was called because she'd collected rocks as a kid, and she'd had one piece just like it. She'd stopped on the dirt road and picked it up because it resembled a chocolate chip cookie. "'This is for you,' he said. "'A present. Always keep it with you.' She touched his cheek. "'You're a good boy.' She tilted his head so she could glimpse his cinnamon-colored eyes. He pulled away from her. Thanks, Mom. He went into his room and closed the door. Every morning, she took the rock off her dresser and put it in her pocket. Seventeen-year-old Owen was not a good boy. He became distant and secretive, determined, it seemed, not to spend any time around her passionate about being out from under her roof as much as possible, almost animalistic in his rage when she tried to keep him close. He had, by then, made at least one friend, Eddie, who wasn't very bright. There was a dullness in his eyes she'd seen in the stupidest of dogs. Sarah begged Owen not to go out that night, not to go down to the trestle where she knew he was going, even though he swore he never went there. Please don't go. You know what happens when people go there. Jesus, Mom, there's not much else to do here. Language, she snapped. His defiant eyes said the rest. He sucked in a breath and pressed his lips together, snatched his granddaddy's patch-riddled coat from the rickety stand, and pushed open the screen door. She ran to it, catching it to ease it to the latch. Don't please, honey. He hesitated on the top step, and she heard him say, Mom, you're going to have to let me go sometime. You have no choice. She watched him trounce down the wooden steps that were sagging from age and duck into Dull Eddie's car. He never came home. Dull Eddie claimed not to remember anything except the hooting of owls, which, he said, sounded like they were asking each other who was going to cook for them. He remembered nothing else except, he said, the taste of the pumpkin beer they'd wanted to try that they'd stolen from the Circle K. When Jean, finally chief of police, settled her into the chair in his office, he slid her a plastic bag of clothing. These were near the trestle her breath hitched in her chest. At the bottom? No, near it, Jean said. About a half mile up the path that branches out on the opposite side. The words pressed into her brain like broken glass under bare feet. Are you saying he's naked? That my son is naked and missing? We've searched, Sarah. Jean set his elbows on the desk, rubbed his freckled temples. We've scoured the area, but we're small, and he's probably run the words cold in her heart. Don't tell me you're giving up. Giving up like you mean how your daddy, who used to sit in that chair right there, gave up on finding my daddy? Jean glanced away. I didn't say that. I just said there's only so much we can... Bullshit! She said. You're a coward. How dare you, Jean? Sarah leapt from the chair, seized the bag with Owen's clothing, and crushed it to her chest as she headed for the door. She turned and spat. My husband never would have given up on anyone in this town. Except, she thought, for me and our son. Sarah was aware she'd one day live her final Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve, And she was sure the year that ensued, the black year, was going to be one final after another until the anniversary day. Still, something kept her hanging on. A nag, persistent and annoying as the squawks of November crows, told her that she was on the cusp of a miracle. Sarah stands at the last spot she is certain Owen was the night he vanished she is sure what has summoned her to the edge of the trestle is his voice but she hears only the hishling of a large beast trampling the corpses of a thousand leaves her daddies don't ever go into the woods don't ever ever play near the trestle standing on the train rail to her right perched like a vigilant owl is an albino figure with carrot-colored eyes burning like twin candles then she sees owen in the clothes he was wearing when last she saw him, before he got into Dulleddy's car, and oh, the sight of him pierces her. She rushes ahead, but he thrusts forth his hand and shifts his gaze to the ground. Do you still have the stone I gave you? He asks. Sarah opens her right hand. I do, I... The stone is gone. There is only an imprint in her palm. Panic gusts through her. I just had it. You need to move on, Mom. Her heart balls in her chest like a sun-exposed worm. His voice. It isn't quite his voice, is it? It is a throaty patchwork of mud and stomach growls. She takes another step. What's wrong? You should have left here. You should have gone like Granddaddy wanted you to. She feels like she can't get enough air in her lungs. How did... how did you know about that? Because I'm special. Special babies are born with anything but blue eyes, isn't that what you said? She sweeps forward toward his perch on the rail. Get down from there, you'll fall. Don't look in my eyes and don't cross the stones, Owen says. If you get beyond the stones, I can't protect you. I don't care. Tears coalesce in her vocal cords and dam behind her eyes. She steps closer. Aren't you coming home? I can't, Mom. Stay where you are. Closer. Where have you been? She asks. Why didn't you tell me you were just going away for a while? Don't, he yells. Closer. All this time, I thought you were dead. That's what they told me to think, because of the way they found your clothes. But see? You still have your jacket and your jeans, and you can come home, and we can stay together, and Mom, stop. The valley, dark as an inkwell, spreads below her. A gelid wind bites through her nightgown, and she feels his hand, rough, spiked, like the tips of pine cones, press into the flesh of her upper arm. Don't look at me, he whispers. Sarah can't obey, and instead of her son, she sees the goat man with his carrot colored eyes hooked nose and face patched in iceberg-colored, whip-like hairs. The intention of a scream forms and dissipates, is replaced by a vision of her daddy, and Seb, and Owen, standing there, corporeal as whistlers. Staying here, eventually, it'll make you sad, her daddy says. Not anymore, she thinks. And she leaps from the last spot she is certain her son Owen was the night he vanished and into the arms of the men she loves.
0: You just listened to Stones, written and performed by Christy Peterson Schoonover. For more episodes like this, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to submit a story, please contact us at beyondthescreams.com.